0: This was about as bizarre and as
1: easy as it gets.
0: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work.
1: I feel like we got top, top, top.
0: I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt.
1: $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So you are looking to sell your business? My guess is you're actually not. My guess is that you'd like to know that you could sell your business... Down the road, but right now you're busy building it. And if that's the case, standard operating procedures can be your secret sauce. These are the documents that you need to show your employees how to do their work. And we've just developed a new ebook. You can get it at slash sop Have you ever heard of the foxhole leadership test? Grab a team and ask them if they were in a wartime situation, if the bullets were flying, who would they want at their back, at their side? It's an interesting question for a teammate because the cliques and the friendships that exist among teams somewhat become secondary. When you're really against the wall, who you would want at your back is not really an important question. And it forces people to think about who they think of as their leaders. And I'd be curious for you if you consider yourself a foxhole leader, someone that your team would want at their back, their side when the going gets tough. Are you in the trenches with your team? Are you not delegating anything that you wouldn't do yourself? All admirable traits of great leaders. However, if you think about it, they can also hold you back because your company will be limited to the number of hours in your day. And so that's, I think, one of the great paradoxes of entrepreneurial leaderships. The things that endear you to your people, the willingness to get in the trenches, do the work, also have the potential to hold you back. And my next guest, Michelle Henkin, lived this the hard way. Michelle built a translation company but realized she had to get out of the trenches doing the work. She had to offboard herself and she did it successfully. Here to tell you how she did it is Michelle Henken. Michelle Henken, welcome to Build Cell to Radio.
0: John. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here today. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Tell me about Alpha Translations. You, you, you grew up in Germany, so you obviously spoke German. And you yeah. moved to Canada. Tell me the story about how this company came to be.
0: Okay. Well, I was actually born in Toronto, Scarborough. Um, and my, my mom was Canadian. My dad was German. And they moved back and forth. Um, so, which was really beneficial for me because I grew up fully bilingual in German and in English. Um, and then um, once I started kindergarten school, so I started grade one in Toronto, kindergarten in Germany, then left, always in the middle of the school year, right? It's uh, It couldn't just happen during the summer, no. Um, so then end of grade two, moved back to Germany and, and that's where we stayed until um, until I moved back to Canada in 93. So yeah, the majority of my life, I, I well, maybe that's not true anymore, but um, I did grow up for a large amount of time in Germany.
1: <laughs> nice, Sprechen Sie Deutsch, ich bin John. That's my extent of my German, that's all I got. <laughs> So don't ask me anything else.
0: Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you,
1: Shin. <laughs> that was the only third that was the third one. It worked. It worked. <laughs> Good deal. Okay. So you start off in 93. Translate how, like, how did you make money translating stuff? How, how does that work? How do you make money?
0: Okay. Well, I actually started a little bit before 93. 93 is when we moved back to Canada. But I actually started when I was in Germany. So when I was in university, I studied languages, law, and art history, and I started translating books. There was a TV series that was really popular um, in North America called Quantum Leap, and they were bringing that show to Germany. So I was translating that book. That was the first book I ever translated, and um, I was, like I said, in university. And then I translated a couple of other books and short stories, and. Um, That was fun. There wasn't, it didn't pay very well, um, (laughs) which was okay. I enjoyed it. I was still in school. Um, But then I got asked to do um, a different translation, like a more legal translation, business translation for a car manufacturer. And so I started doing that. And um, because I was studying law as well, and I was fully bilingual, um, I just focused on the legal translations and so i had so that this one this was taking two, a, a like
1: a legal document like a contract right and and transcribing it so the essence of the legal commitment was honored in both languages yep. the the nuances of the legal legalese was reflected in both languages
0: correct correct i mean obviously i wasn't a lawyer Um, But I did understand the implications. And so I did a lot of those translations, legal as well as business translations. And then we decided to move to Canada and this was in about 92, 93. And um, my client was like, no, we really like having you here. And, you know, we really want to continue working with you. And and, um, I had read an article um, about this lady who lived in Australia and who was a translator. I never wanted to become a translator. I was gonna be a lawyer um, or journalist or something like that. And um, she would spend all day at the beach till about 3 p.m. And that's when she'd go home and start translating because her clients in the US were waking up at that time. And I'm like, wait a minute, we're moving to Canada, Alberta specifically, that's an eight hour time difference. So I went back to my client and I said, look, when you guys leave at five o'clock or 5.30 or 6 p.m., that's when I'm waking up, I'm eight hours behind. Why don't you fax me your translation? Because now we have this amazing technology called a fax machine. Um, <laughs> it was super exciting, uh, come on. And um, so they thought that was fantastic. And you know, service in Germany at that time was not amazing. Um, don't know if it's amazing today. It's just uh, one of those things. So I had the service component, the expertise and the time component on my side at a time when many translators were still typing the translations on a typewriter, printing them out and sending them by mail. So time was super of the essence, right? Translations are an afterthought. Oh, by the way, we need this in a different language. Um, So that was what I always called my purple cow after Seth Godin's book. And um, that's what happened. And so I would get up and I would have 10, 20, 30 pages of Thermal paper fax, continuously, Um, I couldn't afford a fax machine with a cutter, right, because those were like really expensive. I I remember
1: those those big circular things. Oh, my
0: gosh. I know, right, on the thermal (laughs) paper. And I still have a binder with some of my early translations. Of course, they're all blank, right, because nothing's on them anymore.
1: Anyone, by the way, under like 35 right now is listening to this going, what on earth are they talking about? These freaks, these old people. (laughs) So you were doing kind of time zone arbitrage, was your purple cow, if you will.
0: That's exactly what I did. Time zone arbitrage. I've never actually heard anybody say it so succinctly, but that's what it was.
1: But that's what it was. And that's what worked for you. Take me through the transition from, uh, you know, Michelle selling her time, effectively, to building a multi-million dollar company. Like what was the inflection point when it went beyond just you and became a company?
0: I love that question. Um, So obviously the first thing that happened is thing that always happens. I'm working 20 hour days doing translations and I didn't want to say no to any of my clients because I was going to build a business. If I say no, they're going to go elsewhere. I got referred and referred and referred because nobody was doing what I was doing. So it grew and it just, the workload just became too much for me to handle. And I had to face a choice. Either I turn a client down or I train some translators to do this with me. And I chose the latter. Um, so I started training translators, um, which then eventually led to me proofreading 20 hours a day um, and editing 20 hours a day and teaching and training. Um, and then eventually, um, I got the translators to proofread and my role shifted, which was actually, if I can elaborate on that a little bit, it was actually a really important pivotal point in my business where I purposefully offboarded myself from translating and proofreading. And it was not an easy decision. Um, well, it was an easy decision. It wasn't easy in the execution because I kept getting pulled back in. So at this point um, my then husband was doing project management for me. And I had been basically fired by my hairdresser, my nail tech, my dentist. You know, I'm sure my doctor would fire me if he could because I never knew how much work was coming in. So I'd make appointments and I'd be always canceling them because, right? So I was excited. There was this one pivotal day And I said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not proofreading. I'm not translating. Um, My job is bringing in business. So, um, but I didn't articulate it like that. I just said, I'm not doing that anymore. And so there was one day I came um, and I got called into the office and my then husband said, Hey, can you just uh, proofread these three lines for me? By the time I send it to the proofreader, it's going to take much longer. And I have my gym clothes, I have my car keys in my hand. I'm ready to go. I'm excited. I can leave the house. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And it was like, but but why? It'll take you five minutes. It'll take me much longer. Like, no, I'm not going to do it. Because then I'm going to get sucked back in. You're going to ask me this. And then you're going to ask me again and ask me again. And that was the last no I had to say. And it was, let's just say we didn't have a good day together. But
1: <laughs> now I know why it's like my then husband, the the yes, preface okay. then, now, now no, it's
0: clear. No, no, in all fairness, he was a great guy. Nothing to do with that. But yes, <laughs> it, 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 does, it does sound like that a little bit. Um, no, but it was just a pivotal point and And that's where I realized. And I actually said to him, I'm not a translator anymore. I'm not a proofreader anymore. I, um, you're head of marketing and sales and my job is bringing in business. So that was the real pivotal point which allowed the company to scale and my job was bringing in clients and bringing I,
1: in Michelle, I think a lot of people are listening to this saying, I know I need to do that. I know I need to stop inspecting the work of my employees yep. and let go and let them do it. But they fear that whether their name is on the door, certainly their reputation is on the line and and they just can't let go. What's your advice to someone who finds himself in that spot?
0: Yeah, you just have to off-board yourself. What really helped me is reframing what I was doing because th- there's a permission that has to happen. And whether it's you know your husband or employees or your COO, Right there's always going to be people trying to pull you back because that, that 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 change is difficult. But most importantly, I think as entrepreneurs we feel guilty saying no. I'm not going to do that anymore invokes a change. It invokes something that we we have to say no to our team and and typically we're really close with our team, so we have a lot of guilt. And that offboarding uh, process can feel like. Um, I'm doing doing something for me that is a luxury that I shouldn't do. And that's, I think, where a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck. Um, What helped me was reframing it. Instead of, you know, saying, oh, I'm not going to translate anymore. I'm not going to proofread anymore. Um, I reframed it to say, I've changed positions within the company. And here's why. My responsibility is to keep everybody busy. I've made a commitment to my translators. They've turned down jobs, full-time jobs, to work freelance for me. I have a commitment. And so my job is now this. So reframing it as the job, even though you're the CEO, um, is is just really important. And, And if we can kind of make our teams, help our teams, not make our teams, help our teams understand where we're bringing our strengths to the company. Um, It can make it a little bit easier. Does that make sense?
1: It does a hundred percent. And I love the way you use the word guilty, because I think there's a sense of guilt when you, to your own point, it'll take you five minutes, right? And and you can, you feel that sense of guilt. Like, oh, am I I above it all to now that I don't, you know? But you're Uh, right. Defining your role with great clarity and specificity is important. How did you get people doing the work as well as you would? I mean, did you document, we hear a lot about standard operating procedures or, or you know, processes. Did you do any of that stuff?
0: I probably should have. I was in my mid twenties. I didn't know the first thing about processes or running a business and process is not something that comes easily to me. I think like most entrepreneurs, I fly by the seat of my pants and I hire people to do the process because my brain is not that patient. Uh, So no, but I should have. And eventually, of course, later I did. Um, I trained by doing, and it's actually interesting. Some of the processes I used unwittingly um, became a staple in training and educating translators and proofreaders. Um, and a big part of our quality control process later on as we were a much bigger company. Um, but it was really the, the feedback loop. I would first proofread and then give feedback, give feedback, give feedback, give feedback. Um, and and then at some point I, I needed to let it go, which was also the reason why, I. the other reason why I didn't look at those three sentences because, you know, yeah, I was that arrogant that I thought I'm going to do it better as we all are. It's like, Oh, you know, we have to micro look at everything because we think we can do it better. But at the end of the day, then we're trading time for money. Mm -hmm. And what I do is put my best translators, my best proofreaders on do quality control checks, um, you know, do education, do workshops for them and, and, you know, just keep that community going
1: I'm glad you bring up time for money because I'd love to know, how did you bill for your services? Was it by the hour, by the project? Like what was,
0: what was your model? It was by the word. The, by the, the word? In the oh, by yeah. And it was also by the line. Like Europe um, had a standard where they, where they would charge by the line without spaces or with spaces and whoever, everybody did differently. And it used to be by target, target line, um, and now it's a little bit more standardized with with tools and everything. It's typically by source words. So if you're sending an English text, um, I'm going to bill based on how many texts are in that original document. Got it. Um, yeah.
1: When you started off, your point of differentiation was time zone arbitrage, your purple cow. How did yes. that evolve? By the time you became a multimillion dollar company, what was your, we call it monopoly control, but. What, is your, what was your kind of enduring point of differentiation as, as you became a much larger company?
0: Um, you know what? It lasted surprisingly much, much, much longer than what I thought. Huh. Um, also, really the specialization in legal translations. I I made a choice fairly early on to differentiate and say, we're going to focus on legal translations. And we're going to focus on legal translations Um in a way that the quality as well as the speed is going to be unmatched. Now, most of our clients were in Europe, so that time difference still applied, That Mm -hmm. never went away. Mm -hmm. Um, And translations are always urgent when there's big deals for law firms, they need it done and they need it done well and they need it done quickly. So we, did a great job and we we built their trust and we got referred um, and referred and referred so by the time I sold um, think about in the in the high 50s 58 or 59 or something like that of the top 100 law firms were our clients
1: wow wow huh that's incredible
0: and you know what How was your what was
1: your cash flow model because like, how did you bill for your services and, and how did you sort of finance your growth? Was it a.
0: I'll let you answer that. Okay. Um, <laughs> thanks for avoiding the stacked questions. Those are always harder I appreciate it. I get myself with those two all the time. Um, so,
1: what was your question again? What was your cash flow model? Like, did you pay your translators and then get paid or did you get paid first and then pay your translators? Right.
0: Okay. So we were also very fortunate that typically in Germany, people pay their bills faster than in North America. And, and I know, like, I know, this is a gross generalization and we did have some law firms that had the attitude to say, we'll pay you when our clients pay us. But I would say 90% of our clients would pay us within two to four weeks. So um, we pay our translators typically twice a month as well, um, typically net 30. Um, we, we did have some times where we needed to strike some deals with our translators, specifically during the, the um, Lehman Brothers crisis 2007-2008. Mm-hmm. That was a really tough cash flow year for us, uh, just a tough year in general. But... Um, Typically, we tried to pay our translators every two weeks, but like two weeks delayed or at the same time. So while we did have some cash flow crunches when we had um, bigger clients, corporate clients, for the most part, we were fortunate. We had very few clients that paid us 90 or 120 days.
1: Got it. As you're growing this company have you got a sense of what it might be worth? Like have you got any sort of valuation multiple in your mind as you're, as you're kind of growing it.
0: As I'm growing it, no, it didn't occur to me that maybe I would sell. Like it wasn't, it wasn't an original thought that I was going to build something to sell. Right. That wasn't, I was in my early twenties. I was trying to make a livelihood. I was building my company. And then, you know, eventually I was a single mom and, and, raise my kids while I was growing the company. And and it, it never felt like something that, okay, I'm gonna sell this. I didn't, never even occurred to me until probably 20 years, 18, 20 years in, um, when I started, uh, when I joined EO, uh, when I joined different peer groups, um, you know, my horizon expanded and and I looked at the possibilities. And um, then it became, okay, yeah, eventually I want to do this.
1: Hmm. And so what went from, what changed, I guess, from, yeah, maybe maybe eventually I'll want to do this to <clears throat> proactively planning your sale. Was there sort of a straw that broke the camel's back or some sort of trigger that, that put things on the front burner?
0: Um, great question. So I had set up, if I can go back just a little bit. The way I set up and ran my business, um, really, there was no reason for me to sell. It ran basically without me. I had an amazing CEO in place <clears throat> who really ran everything. I focused on. Eventually, I focused on what I loved to do best, which was strategy, which was you know visiting some key accounts. But I wasn't doing sales anymore. I had my sales team who were amazing. Sometimes they'd ask me to come with, but. Honestly, I worked maybe a day a week, two days a week if that and and when Sounds I Sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's my superpower. That's my superpower. How to offboard yourself and so grow your company. That's that's what I know how to do really well. But
1: it does beg the question why sell because you know, working one day a week and things are cruising, you got a exactly. COO doing all the hard
0: work. It makes why no sell? Sense. Exactly, why sell? And so um, the, the the trigger came when um machine translation, and we had used machine translation, we had used translation tools as well. Um, we were a bit sheltered because we were focused on legal translation. So companies in the in the technology space or you know, different areas um could leverage machine translation and, and AI much more than we could in the legal field. So We were sheltered, but I saw it coming that we would need to invest heavily and deeply in AI, in machine translation, um, in order to really serve our legal clients in the best possible way. And we started doing that. Um, But by this time, um, my my daughters are grown. Um, I've been doing this for 20 somewhat years. And I just knew I didn't have the energy to basically reinvent my company to keep that trajectory going. Um, I think there's a ton of people
1: listening to this who feel exactly the same right now, right? Like they're looking at a huge investment to keep up with technology, to keep up with, you know, what's around the bend. And they're like, I don't know if I have the stomach for it.
0: Right. And... I, what I did know is that my company was fantastic, that my team was amazing, but I wasn't the CEO. Like as a CEO, you're, you're really, you're the chief energy, energy officer. You're the chief of culture. Um, that's what drives and motivates your entire team. And, you know, while I looked forward to going to work and spending time with my team and doing strategy, I could also increasingly see that I was not the right person to take this amazing company that I built to that next frontier of reinventing it through technology.
1: And Michelle, give us the economics, uh, like revenue. Where are you at this point in the game? Uh, Profitability, that kind of stuff.
0: that's a good question. We were probably at about 4 million, 3 million, 4, sorry, if I'm talking, I'm talking Canadian dollars, right? So probably about 2, 3 million, maybe 4, just under 4 million USD. Um, And we had had three amazing. Yeah. Top line. Um, we had had three amazing years under our belt. Um, our gross margins were great. Our EBITDA was really good.
1: What would you and- be netting on an EBITDA basis on the four on a percentage basis?
0: Well, well yeah, it was. Um, so when we sold at 4.4, our, our um, normalized EBITDA was just under a million. So it's probably about half a million, something like that.
1: Got it. And yeah. did you have any sense, Michelle? So you, you're you're almost at a million dollars of EBITDA. Did you did you have any sense of what it might be worth on a multiple of EBITDA, or were you thinking multiple of revenue? Like like were you starting to kind of zero in on on what you thought was a reasonable multiple?
0: Yeah, I did. I, I kind of had an idea. Um, I mean, knowing. Um, uh, so there was a technology that was changing. There was also another development in that the industry was converging. Um, so at that time, which was really only two and a half, three years ago, um, actually it was about three years ago that I kind of made the decision that I was going to go forward with the with the sale um, or that I was going to try and get acquired. Um, but there's a lot of convergence. So three years ago, there was not even $1 billion player in this industry. Not a single company was worth a billion dollars. And so there was so much consolidation happening and the buyers were out there and the buyers were looking to find quality companies that were profitable. I was in a niche that was, you know, desirable, specialized. And I had built my company in a way that, whether I was there or not really didn't impact what was happening because for the most part, I wasn't there anyway. So um, that's kind of where I was. Okay. So all of these factors coming together, it's time.
1: And did you have a multiple that you thought was, was fair, like a multiple of EBITDA at this point? What did you think?
0: I, I, I did. I was, um, I was hoping to maybe get, you know, two times revenue, um, or, you know, maybe seven to eight times even being super optimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and, and, was, and before we go further, I want to just get a sense. You mentioned you had kids. They were, uh, you'd, you'd raise them. You're, you're kind of looking down the barrel of this major investment to keep up with all the technology innovations in the translation space. Was there also an element of, man, it's, it's seven times, like this is a big chunk of my net worth. And, yeah. and, and I, I'm kind of gambling it if, if in the face of Google Translate and all these other technologies, like maybe I need to get some chips off the table. Was that, a, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but was that also part of the calculus?
0: Um, not really, because I always had faith that the company would continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't worried that if I stayed in the company, I would lose it. I, I would, I knew I would do the right thing. I, I just gave myself permission to choose not to.
1: Got it. Okay. So where does it go from there? You're, you, you've, you've got a sense of what you think it might be worth. How did you go about marketing the company for sale? Like what was the next step in your process?
0: Okay. So I, I took a, Bit of an unorthodox um, approach. because I mean, if you have an investment banker in, and 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 they're great, and I, a lot of them are my friends, they do a great job. But for a company at, of my size, um, the cost can be prohibitive. Um, you know, even lawyer costs and all of those things are already a big consideration. So. Um, What I did is I went to a language industry conference in in Poland, actually, in August 2018. Hmm. And I talked to some of my peers and, and one person specifically who I've known for 20 somewhat years, who's been in the industry for over 30. And he I knew that he knows everybody and who's who, and he knew who's buying and all of that. And, and so I sat down with him and, and I said, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And he's like, I don't blame you. I think it's a perfect time. Uh, I said, so who's buying? And he's like, well, you know, I can do this for you. This is what I'm going to charge, which was much, much less than an investment banker would charge. But, you know, there was also much, much less that he did for that, but that worked and so, yeah, we put together um, a prospectus and he sent it out to his network and, and eventually we got an offer and it actually came fairly quickly. I think we we put the memorandum out, um, it was the end of August, beginning of September. And then we had a couple of, couple of you know, Expressions of interest and and sent a little bit more and and by the way I knew I would very likely be selling to a competitor, so that, that's a whole different ball game because you know you have to be so much more careful with respect to your clients and I can elaborate on that as well if 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 you like. Um, so we had an offer, the offer that I then ended up accepting came in on October second, which was the day before my birthday, and I kind of took that as a bit of a sign and. Um, it was an all cash offer, which I was very clear. I said, I will not accept an earnout. If I'm going to sell, I'm going to walk. Don't bring me anything at all. I, I won't even look at it. So I was really clear about that.
1: Wow. Now that's surprising given the fact that it's a service business. And mm-hmm. what was the reaction to the broker that you met in Poland? What was his reaction to this notion that like, I'm, I want all cash, no earnout? Did he push back at all of that? Or what was his reaction?
0: No, there was no pushback. I, I think I was that clear.
1: <laughs> Interesting. And and why was that the case? What 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 did you what had you heard about earnouts that made you feel so emphatically that you did not want one?
0: It wasn't necessarily about the earnouts, even though that played a bit of a role. But for me, it was. I've been an entrepreneur since I was 14 years old. I have never worked for anybody in my life. And I've always had my freedom. And freedom is my biggest value. So I was able to design both my business and my life to ser- serve me and my family so that we could live the life that we truly wanted to live by design and still have the company grow. So the thought of reporting to somebody and Actually, having that freedom curtailed to some extent, um, I just couldn't wrap my brain or my gut around it. It just was not something that was either, ever on the table, um, which, you know, it's interesting because, of course, I could have done that. I could have taken an investment and, you know, built it up and, you know, then maybe sold it for 20 or 30 or 50 million years down the road. But I wanted to do something different. And back to, I don't want to work for anybody. It just, um, and then also on the earn out side, which, you know, I heard from other EOs and other entrepreneurs that a lot of times they've told me that, well, they didn't stay long enough, so they didn't get it, or that it felt like a carrot. Um, and, and the, the biggest thing I heard that the earnout was often not in their control. So, you know, it was some something that the acquiring company made decisions and then they didn't meet goal and their earnout went away. And I I just none of that sounded Appetizing
1: to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Makes sense, Michelle. You've referenced EO a couple of times, so I want to make sure all of our listeners know it's Entrepreneurs Organization. You can Google it. It's a peer group for entrepreneurs, uh, and it sounds like you're a member, which is great. Um, okay, so all cash offer was your bottom line. October second comes, and you get an offer. What was your reaction to the number? What was what was the offer for, and what was your reaction?
0: Um, you know, I'm not I, I can talk about the sale price. Um, I can tell you that the offer was the sale price, so I was happy with that. They didn't play any games, they were a very fair acquirer. Um, so I was like, Okay, let's Let's see where we're at with that. Um, and and at that time too, I was I was again first time doing this. I was a little concerned because I had heard stories that, you know, they try and get the price down and they try and pick things out through due diligence. And and for me that didn't happen. They were super fair.
1: Fantastic. Uh, so RWS is the name of the acquire, they published the. The price is six million US, which, if we back into it, it implies a six point seven times EBITDA on uh, normalized earnings of a point uh, almost a million dollars, yeah. nine hundred thousand. Got it. So that's a fantastic result. It it fell slightly below your expectations, but it was all cash. Did did, had, did you? How did you reconcile those two things? Did you think, ah, oh, maybe I'm leaving a little bit. Of, like, how did you go from seven to eight to six? Was that, did you, did you, did you hesitate at all? Or was it like.
0: Well, again, being a Canadian company, $6 million is that time at that time was 8 million U.S. So I was okay with that number.
1: I see. And so there was the currency had flipped. Uh, yeah. Right
0: but you know it was still a little bit i was hoping maybe for a little bit more but the the other thing that happened to they were one of the companies that i wanted to sell to they were a good company they still are they're now i believe the largest i don't keep up with with the news as much anymore but i believe they are now after their most recent acquisition um, the only billion dollar player in the industry, and they are the largest one. So I'm very proud that my little Alpha Translations lives on with them. Um, and it was a company that I had heard really good things about, um, that other colleagues had been acquired by. And they had a reputation in the industry of being fair. And it was important to me to take care of my team. So really early on, um, I asked about, because there were other acquirers out there, and, and I had conversations with a couple of other people, and, and I knew some of them were known for just, you know, getting rid of the team and, and just pulling it in, and I really didn't want that. So I was picky about who I was going to sell to because I was concerned about my team. And so um, as far as I know, most people are still there three years later, so that. Also makes me very happy.
1: How did you approach the topic of telling your team? Was there was there anyone that you told before you accepted the um, you know the check if eff- effectively? How did you handle it?
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> That's always the hardest thing to do. And it was very difficult. I told my CEO very early on, because we always we did everything together. I told her very early. That I was
1: what
0: thinking, was her reaction? Um, I had kind of broached her before, you know, a couple of years ago to kind of say, hey, you know, eventually I think I'm going to sell. Um, so I'm not going to do this forever. So it was already on the table. Um, and then I told her, it's like, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to actually do this properly now and, and see if I can get an offer for it. And um Yeah, I think she was more shocked than she let on, like in retrospect. Um, But being the loyal and dedicated and amazing CEO that she was, she stood by my side and went through it with me. Um, And then we had to bring in a couple of people from the team because it was so much work to do the due diligence. So we then had our office manager and my EA who knew. Um, And it was a small office, so it was... It, I know it felt really difficult for them. I know that year nobody wanted to do a Christmas party because, you know, people didn't want to be beside people and somebody knew and the other person didn't know. And, and I think that was a really difficult time for everybody, especially for my team. Mm-hmm. What
1: was your reaction or what was the reaction of your COO when she heard the numbers. I guess I'm, and I'll tell you why I'm asking this to give you some thought, the time to buy you some time to think about it. But I guess, you know, she'd been running the company and your own admission, you were working one day a week on the fun strategy stuff while she's putting in the hard yards, doing the really heavy lifting. A lot of people might feel a little resentful, right? When, you know, like Michelle rides off into the sunset with this big check, was there any resentment or... How did you sort of navigate those waters?
0: Well, you know, I don't want to elaborate on that because that's, um, you know, personal for her as well. And I can share yeah. from, well, I don't want to say how she felt because I feel sure. like this is a public forum and I want to be respectful. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I could have handled it better. Oh, okay. Um, for sure. Um, I think she probably felt somewhat resentful, but again, that's my interpretation. And I don't mm. want to talk about how somebody else feels. Cause I don't sure. know. How mm. did you feel then? Um, you know, I felt that I had always been fair in the compensation. Um, whether she felt that or not, I don't know. I think she did. Um, and that there was going to be a bonus. Um, I could have handled it a little bit better, or probably much better, in being more specific about the number mm. um, that you know, I would share with her. Um, but being my first acquisition, I didn't even know how this was going to work. I didn't know how much taxes I needed to pay and I, I didn't I didn't know if I was going to get the final number. I, I was just I didn't believe anything was gonna happen until it actually happened. It, it felt completely, Unreal to me. It hmm. you know, wrap my brain around it. So um, perhaps I could have made a commitment earlier on as to the number I was willing to share with her and I didn't. And I, I think that was a mistake.
1: Hmm. You know, it's, it's, I'm so glad you spoke for your own self because yeah, we, she's not here to say her own opinion, mm-hmm. but I think that is one of the most difficult things for entrepreneurs to deal with, right? Because I think as entrepreneurs, we we get the fact that the 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 role of shareholder is different than the role of employee. And you role you had two roles, right? Like you were both the ultimately the CEO and strategist, but you were also the shareholder. And sometimes for employees, that can be hard to differentiate, right? And they don't necessarily see the roles as different.
0: I I think so, and I think where where I. Slept well at night thinking I had done well and that I had been fair, was also knowing, I mean, whenever there was a crisis or whenever there was cash flow issues or specifically during the the Lehman crisis, um, I didn't take the salary. I was the one who put the cash into the business, right? I lived off my savings. I funded the company to make sure everybody got paid. So, I mean, maybe that's something we tell ourselves to, to feel less, you know, but we took all the risks. We, we did all of that. And, you know, but yeah, I guess it's harder for for somebody else to wrap their brain around it. But I I think she's still there. I think she's happy. And, and um, I'm definitely incredibly grateful for the amazing job that she's done together with me and, you know, for the company over the years.
1: Yeah. For what it's worth, I, I don't think you should feel guilty for a second. I think you are you took all the risk. You, you did it for 20 years. You started the business. You put the cash in. You had your old, you know, huge part of your net worth tied to it for, you know, two decades. So yeah. I'm letting you off the hook, even if you don't let yourself off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> you. Uh, Can I get yeah.
0: off the hook now? <laughs> What's that? Can I get off the hot seat now?
1: (laughs) 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 This is great. I, you know, I think it's, um, it's such important advice for folks to think through one of the biggest regrets that folks have after selling is like, Oh, I wish I had a do over on how I told my employees, how I handled it. Like it, it all comes so quickly and it can be very, uh, shocking when it actually gets done. Where were you when the wire hit your bank account? Do you remember that moment?
0: Yeah, I was in Edmonton. I was, uh, Yeah, it was here, my lawyer, um, who was amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, Definitely don't know if I can give shout outs, but she was fantastic. Sure,
1: go ahead. What's her name or his name?
0: Her her name is Heather Barnhouse at Denton's. And she is like, she just held my hand through it. She did an amazing job. negotiated well. And yeah, she was just fantastic. And she called me and she's like, funds are here. And it was like eight o'clock in the morning or something like that. And I'm like, wow. And it was, it was a little bit anticlimactic because it's still, I hadn't seen it. There's a bunch of zeros. What does that mean? I, I, I didn't come from a wealthy family. So that's more money on one pile than I ever imagined to see in my lifetime, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was surreal. It was surreal
1: in the truest sense of the word, what did you do to celebrate? Did you, was there a trophy you bought or did you buy yourself a fancy car or a house or something? What, what, how did you, how did you mark the achievement?
0: You know, it's, it's kind of funny. It, it, it took me a while to give myself permission um, to spend some of the money. I didn't, I really didn't understand it. And I don't know if, um, I know some other people I've spoken to have, have felt that same way. It, it still feels, I have no concept of it. So one of the things on my dream board that I had was um, this Rolex watch that I wanted to get myself. And um, I did eventually, I got it. Awesome. Um, but it took about eight months to give myself permission <laughs> to my, the silly watch. I mean, yes, it wasn't cheap, but we just talked about the numbers and the cash in my account. I mean, it was much less after all of the taxes and all of the fees sure. and all of that. Concept. But still, it definitely warrants me buying myself a watch, and and I had the hardest time with it.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you did it. I think there's a huge, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a big conspicuous consumption guy or buying you know a bunch of. Uh, monuments to your success, but there's something nice about a tangible uh, thing you can touch and feel that reminds you of the achievement of the 20-year journey.
0: I agree, and it's been it had been on my dream board for a long time. And what it symbolized was one day I'm going to make it because while I the company was doing well and I paid myself well, and you know there was a lot of you know perks that I could travel and and all of those fun things um my life didn't really change that much right I was doing well I was traveling as much as I wanted to I was you know I had a nice car I had nice shoes and purses and I didn't feel like I really needed anything so even now like my life's not that different um, if anything, I'm I'm a lot cheaper now because the cash flow that would just come in for working a, a day a week is no longer there, right? So that changes things too.
1: Yeah, flying business class to Munich doesn't all of a sudden feel like worth it anymore. Maybe I don't know. Right.
0: <laughs> No, it's true. It's really true. Well, here's a funny story. I think it was like the month after the the deal closed or like a couple of months after the deal closed and we're uh, we're watching TV. (laughs) And this is when it's hitting me that I have no money coming in, right? Um, And because I said, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to write my book and, and, you know, then I want to just do something different. And so this was my year off and probably like three or four months in and we're watching TV and... And um, <laughs> my my man says, "So, how about this movie?" And I'm like, "There's no, I, there are nothing free on Netflix. Why do we have to spend four or five ninety nine for a movie?" And he looked at me. He's like, "Really? Seriously?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, it's expensive."
1: <laughs> it's not. You know what? It's so funny. You're, you're not the you're not the first person to say that. There is a huge difference between living off your income of an operating business and living off your capital. Ask any retiree, it doesn't matter how many zeros they have in their bank account. When you're living off your capital, it somehow changes every purchase. I love that story. It,
0: it does, it really does. So I went from before feeling, you know, like we always think everybody else does it better. Mm. We we always think, oh, this entrepreneur is smarter or this person is, you know, and and we don't realize how many people look at us and think that we have it all figured out. But but I, you know, during that time, I felt like, oh, okay, I'm doing well. I have money. I have cash flow. But I never really had a lot of money in the bank because it all went back into the business. So um, that would be something I would for sure do differently. I would take money out along the way and, and, you know, invest it. Separately from the business, that's something I didn't do. So I went from having great cash flow, but no assets other than the business, to having a lot of assets and no cash flow. Um, middle of the road would be great, but.
1: <laughs> it's great. It's great, uh, you know, great insight because I don't think you're alone. And I think you've, uh, you've, done a great job of articulating. Hey, what are you doing now? So tell us about what's going on. I understand there's a book in the works. Tell us where people can find you and learn more about the book.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So I'm writing a book. I'm hoping it will be published in the fall. It doesn't have a title yet, but what it is about is offboarding yourself to make space for your company to grow while living your ideal fun and fearless life, which is what I did. And, uh, I did it really well. So that's, uh, I, my passion is helping other entrepreneurs achieve that for themselves as well.
1: Fantastic. Where can people find you online? Is there a website they can go to or
0: yeah, LinkedIn? There or? is, there is yeah, a LinkedIn for sure. Michelle Hecken. Um, my website is michellehecken.com with one L. Um, and yeah, email is michelle at michellehecken.com if anybody wants to um, schedule some time and pick my brain. If they're going through something, I'm happy to share my experience one-on-one.
1: That's very generous. Michelle is with 1L, and we'll put all that in the show notes at built Michelle, this was a real treat for me. Thank you for doing it.
0: I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much, John. And, and thank you for making this so warm and welcoming and making it easy to share. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. Hey, if you like today's
1: episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to -to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to -to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to BuiltToSell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warrillow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit BuiltToSell.com blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit ValueBuilderSystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.